All right, everybody. Uh, let's just get started here so that we're we don't have any uh, dead air. Uh, my name is Owen Higgins. This is the Flashpoint Podcast. If you are listening on the app, either live or replay, uh, please hit the subscribe button and get on uh, you know the notification tab so that we can update you. On Thursday, we're going to be joined from Lviv uh, in Ukraine by the journalist Carol Schaefer. She was with us. Uh, last week or two weeks ago, rather, to talk about what she was seeing from Poland as far as the, uh, you know, the refugee crisis there and the ongoing uh, strife in that country. And that conflict is part of what we're going to be talking about today uh, with Imran Siddiqui, who's going to join us in a few minutes here. Uh, we're going to talk about how that conflict is covered and treated, you know, in, in Western media and in Western institutions. Uh, you know, this has been a topic that we've returned to over and over here. Uh, we've talked about uh, quite a bit of things uh, about how this conflict has been covered, you know, as far as the double standards at play, uh, the way that, uh, you know, the conflict in Ukraine and the conflict in Syria have been treated in different ways, how, how we have seen um, uh, different treatment of people, uh, you know, the, the victims of the war, um, you know, in, in, the, uh, in Ukraine and in Syria. And in other parts of the country as well, we've seen that with with Palestine, uh, we've seen that with Iraq, and we've seen that with a lot of other stuff. Uh, Imran, thank you so much for joining us. You want to unmute there? Hey, how's it going? Can you hear me? I can hear you. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, so Imran is uh, the executive director of Care Washington, and uh, I, I think I would call you a relentless advocate um for uh for muslims in the u.s and and for you know and, and for I, I think and justice more broadly i think a lot of the work that you do and and one of the reasons that i think that you know we we tend to gel so well with with the work that we both do is uh that it's not just about that you do a lot of work on justice as well um do you want to just kind of explain who you are a little bit and then we can kind of dive into this into these double standards yeah, um, I, I come from a, a diverse background. Thank you so much, Owen, for, for having me. And yeah, I mean, you know, ton of respect to you as well. Um, like you said, we we get along really well because I see consistency in, in how you approach your work. Um, and, and it's the same thing when it, when it comes to how I approach my work as well, try to be consistent and principled and, and speak truth to power whenever, whenever uh, oppression is, is taking place. So my background is that I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, you know I, I sort of got more into the activism aspect of things uh, post 9/11. Um, I was in college at the time, and just seeing sort of the double standards that were being portrayed through the media towards Muslims, the collective blame, um, the global war on terrorism, uh, just really taking shape during that time frame. I started actually writing on a freelance basis. Um, my background is business and, you know, I, I pursued an MBA and I was in the business world for some time, but I was all, it would always take me back to standing up for my community when I would see any type of injustice taking place. And so I would write articles on a freelance basis and in a wide variety of online outlets at the time, just ch challenging these stereotypes. And so Obviously, as, t as time goes on, as we get closer, like, you know, the Obama administration in 2010, you started seeing an organized hate industry taking shape, um, you know, with hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars being funneled into anti-Muslim hate groups across the U.S. And this could include, you know, passing laws, you know, to criminalize Islam and the practice of Islam in the U.S. It can be uh, police trainings uh, that where you're training police departments with anti-Muslim material. Um, and encouraging mass surveillance on Muslims. It can be um, a whole variety of things, not just, you know, people, you know, holding ugly signs up or, or putting bus ads up. It was it was an organized industry. So at that point, 
me writing one or two articles here and there was not really going to suffice, you know, in terms of what was out there in the in the discourse. So I needed to join up with with a community organization to really try and, and further my my voice in, in standing up for justice. So at the time I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, um, this was around 2011 time frame. And I joined the board of directors of Care Arizona. And it was sort of a, you know, recovering organization at the time. It didn't really have any type of structure or staff or anything like that. So I helped rebuild that as a board member. Um, I became the executive director in 2015 full time. And then um, I recently in two, at the end of 2020 actually accepted the position of Care Washington State. So I relocated to Seattle, Washington. So, and for those of who, you who aren't familiar, CARE is like uh, uh, the largest Muslim civil rights and advocacy organization in the United States. We have chapters all across the U.S., so places like California, Florida, um, Georgia, Arizona, like, you know, 20 plus chapters across the United States. So really out there, not only challenging bigotry, but, you know, standing up in the legal system as well whenever there's discrimination. So employment discrimination, we sued against the Muslim ban when Trump um, was was introducing that. We also do proactive, positive work to try and encourage our community as well. So, yeah, I mean, I'm out there. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty online, you know, in terms of my presence on Twitter. I try to mix it up. It's not just a uh, professional feed. I try to, you know, interject humor here and there, pop culture and, and so on and so forth. So, um, yeah, but it, it's been great, you know, connecting with you over the years and speaking with you um, and, and, and supporting each other's work as well. So I'm happy to be here. Definitely. Definitely. So um, thank you for that. And, 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 and thanks for the overview. Um, I, so I wanted to kind of come back to what I was talking about uh, at the beginning here about how you know, U.S. media, which is, you know, something we we both have a lot of interest, I think, in this and how U.S. media covers uh, conflict, uh, depending on who is involved. And we're seeing that with the war in Ukraine, uh, the Russian invasion, which, you know, of course, is, is horrible and and destructive. Uh, but the way that we are seeing it covered and, and you have you actually have a threat about this. Um, has has really kind of revealed a lot of implicit bias, um, and and I think that um, you know one of the one of the more recent um, uh, you know uh, issues that we have seen has been um, people on TV talking about Muslims and talking about uh, like like countries like Syria countries. Um, you know, that are, uh, that are in the Middle East or in North Africa and kind of comparing that to Ukraine and comparing that, um, as far as the way that, uh, you know, Europeans are going to react. And I'm going to play this clip here. And, and, uh, I remember we both kind of found this, uh, pretty offensive. This is from Julia Ayafi. She's, uh, you know, a, a kind of self-described Russia expert and she's been all over the media recently, uh, you know, talking about Russia and Ukraine. And she said this, and I, I'm going to play this clip, and then I'm, I'm going to talk about her uh, excuse for this and then ask you to comment. But, but let's, let's listen to what she said first. You know, it's one thing for sarin gas to be used on people in faraway Syria who are Muslim and who are of a different cu- culture. What is Europe going to do when it's on European soil done to Europeans? Are they going to intervene? Are they going to keep sit standing back? And if they do intervene, how far are they willing to go? So Ayafi's explanation for this, uh, which I, I don't, I personally do not think is borne out by the transcript or the context, but she claims that she was simply um, expressing the views of Western countries uh, in Europe and and uh, you know European countries who who are taking in, you know, refugees from Ukraine in ways that they never have for other parts of the world um, and, and are considering intervening here. Uh, I, I don't really buy that, but that is her explanation. Um, but I think that what it does is, you know, it talks, it, 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 it kind of speaks to a larger problem uh, in how we talk about these conflicts. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what your take is. Do you buy her explanation? And, and just generally, like, what do you think that that speaks to as far as this kind of implicit bias? Yeah, I mean, first, I want to say, you know, this is how we should be viewing, you know, 
all <laughs> all atrocities that are, that are taking place and war crimes and, and wars of aggression. So, you know, what we're seeing in Ukraine, like you preface, is this is horrific. I mean, it's it's horrific to see like these bombings taking place, these cities being raised to the ground and just like, you know, people's lives being in a in a sense of upheaval, being, you know, forced to flee their homes, you know, up to four plus million people fleeing their homes. So I think we're all horrified by what's happening here. Um, and so, and this, I think, is the the expectation of, of how we would think the media would be reacting during this time when you have things happening like in, in Afghanistan or, or Syria or, you know, in, in so many African countries where, where people are fleeing, you know, oftentimes by boat and, and drowning and capsized at, at, at sea, thousands of people dying on a boat. And they barely make a blip on the radar. And I, I just think it's that double standard that's that's really been the most troubling, especially for people from, you know, these these countries and these communities that, that just want, you know, to be seen as human. So, yeah, I mean, with, with her, her situation, obviously, it was said in, in a very inartful way, at, at the very least, um, it, it was troubling, like, there's an entire thread of these things, the uh, Charlie Diagata um, being the first one on CBS News, where he said that this is a civilized country, this is a civilized place, and you have the whole spectrum of this coverage, uh, whether it's, you know, from the BBC, even folks on Al Jazeera and these different outlets, you know, saying that this is a very European country, this should not be happening here. You have, uh, you know, Prince William saying that we're not used to seeing this type of uh, violence in Europe, which is just mind blowing to be, to begin with. And you have the most blatant folks saying that these are white, blonde haired, blue eyed uh, people, you know, and this is this is why they should be protected. And so, yeah, like, I think, at the very least, what she said was, it, you know, some sometimes people just don't need to necessarily be speaking on a specific issue if they can't articulate it in the right way. And it was just said, and I, I think in a way that for if you're a, if you're a Syrian, and you have family members who have been uprooted from, you know, your country, and, and you see like, just sort of the violent way that people are speaking about your your people like oh these are these what are we going to do now there was no red line when when these these people are, were uh were were being you know kicked out of their countries and and not welcomed in Europe now is there any type of acceptance because they're european so i think it's it's just not there's a lack of humanity when we're speaking about that. Maybe she was trying to be sarcastic. I didn't really get that. And when she said, I, I saw uh, a response on, on Twitter that she made to Ilhan Omar and some, some others. So whatever, but yeah, I think it, it speaks to just the, the situation that we see. I mean, like, let's, let's talk about like Palestine, for example, my brother-in-law is Palestinian. Um, his, his family is actually from Gaza. Uh, nine of his family members got, killed in a bombing campaign in 2014 and we remember how these bombing campaigns were covered um by places like cnn um and countless others not even covered by msnbc you know just like speaking of the sort of oh you know these are two armies that are fighting against each other and and criminalizing uh the palestinian people you saw like towns like shujaia like this is what mariupol looks like you know it looks like shujaia in 2014 where entire city blocks are being raised to the ground but there was a sense of like criminalization like these type of people deserve this type of violence um you know when there's barely any type of uh resistance that's being that's being put up in in places like palestine um you even see this gaza great return march where there's people who are unarmed who are marching to the border and thousands of people being shot um innocently you have you know medics being shot children being shot and they're being painted through the lens of terrorism. So uh, just the way that, you know, it's being portrayed in, in the media uh, currently is, is it's just a, a double standard, unfortunately. It, you know, there's this sort of valorizing, which, you know, like, I, like I've tweeted before, I mean, I respect the fact that people are standing up for their country and like, you know, grandmas and, and folks like that are, are doing whatever it takes to stand up for their nation. But this sort of valorization wasn't taking place you know when it's uh 
a uh, you know Arab or Muslim country being bombed by the West. So it's just something that's troubling. I think folks who come from these communities they see through this, and they're they're very just like they're fed up with this double standard. Yeah, you know it's interesting that you bring up Palestine because uh, I've I've seen a lot of commentary on this specific conflict, the Ukraine Russia war, which. Is uh, it says something, and I'm I'm paraphrasing a massive generalization here, but basically says something to the effect of, you know, uh, we are dealing here with with one country has an overwhelming force, and the other country is this, you know, like scrappy resistor to invasion, and it's 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 like okay, uh, like yes, but that's not the way that we cover it when it's when it's the Palestine issue. Right, which is which is arguably like like similar to the same thing. Um, obviously, uh, uh, Palestine doesn't have the same army that that Ukraine does, but there is like they are still resisting, but they don't get that same level of treatment uh, from media. And so it is interesting to kind of look at it that way and to look at the way uh, that these power differentials are treated depending on who has the power. Right, so when when it's Israel that has the power and Palestine that doesn't, uh, you know, the, the conflict is is painted in a much different way. I mean, like the best way that it's ever possibly painted is kind of like nuance, right? Uh, right. When it comes to the U.S. invading Iraq in the early 2000s um, and, and the Iraqi resistance, uh, you know, throughout the rest of, the, of, of that decade, uh, the media in the U.S. And, and in the West presents it as, you know, like these – are terrorists and these are insurgents insurgency in this case is said like as, as if it's a bad thing. Um, and it is just interesting to see how, when the quote unquote bad guys are the ones who have the overwhelming force, then, uh, the, the victims of the aggression are portrayed as the victims. But when the quote unquote good guys have the overwhelming force, then the good guys are, are painted as the victims of, you know, this insurgency or, or this resistance. Um, like there, like there is, like there is certainly a, um, a pattern going through there, but, uh, but the pattern there is, is, is quite different than, um, than one that, that would say that, uh, like, like there's no consistency in the principle. It's just consistency in who, who, who's in the right. Yeah, correct. I mean, it's, it's frustrating to see, um, and it, it just goes to show like how much uh, public perception is is based off of how things are shaped by the mass media. Um, you know, like Jake Tapper, for example, I saw him the other day, and he was using words like you know innocent country and like you know war of aggression and things like that. But when he's he's covering the Palestine issue, it's like there's it's like full criminalization mode when it comes to uh palestinians who may be killed or bombed out and and so on and so forth so you know obviously like it's it's a different scenario altogether but as people who've witnessed these conflicts and just see like wholesale death you know you see millions of people die in iraq um you know hundreds of thousands dead in in places like you know, Yemen, you know, with American bombs, it's like, how, who, how do we place value on, on certain lives versus others? Um, and that's, that's the most concerning thing. Like Afghanistan, we see, you know, what, 12 civilians killed a few weeks ago, like in, in a, in a miss, misfire drone bombing, uh, allegedly misfire drone bombing. And so where, like, where's the value of, of, of these lives that are given? Like, do we talk about these types of, of war crimes? So it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. Like, also, I think, you know, you're seeing a lot of this, this repeat of, of Cold War type rhetoric, like, where people, you know, yes, like, I mean, Putin is, is definitely committing war crimes. And like, it's, it's, you know, very difficult to to witness this type of thing, but people, businesses shouldn't be boycotting like, you know, Russian products uh, or, you know, uh, Russian artists and, and things like that. There's like sort of this alternative movement that's, that's taking place where they're, they're outlawing like Russian cultural type things. Like, why is that all of a sudden something that, you know, now boycotts are, are all of a sudden cool. So it's, it's just, it, it's a slippery slope there. 
Yeah, yeah, and it becomes like more. I, I, I mean, that's a really good point. That like the way uh, the reaction to it at the state and the and the private uh, public and private sector level really does show just how wow. finicky this stuff can be. Um, I I'm also you know I also kind of want to talk a little bit about how the refugees are being treated um, in. In, in Europe, and one thing, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting is, is looking at the way that Poland has taken in a lot of uh, people from Ukraine uh, with so far without like much, uh, you know, kind of nationalist resistance to that. But uh, uh, Nashua Khan, who we had on the show uh, about a month ago, um, she posted on, on Twitter just this magazine cover from a few years ago when... Uh, when refugees from Syria and from, and from Africa were coming in and it showed, you know, this white woman at the, in the cover of this magazine being torn to pieces by, uh, you know, brown and black hands. And now of course that it's, that it's Ukraine. It's, it's fine. I mean, the, the double standard as far as refugees go, I mean, we did talk about this a little bit as far as, as uh, the, the coverage goes, but uh, the actual policy as well. I mean, in, in Ireland, uh, which, which is, you know, not, doesn't have quite the same history of, of this kind of stuff as other parts of Europe, but, you know, there are, are thousands of people just languishing in these, uh, direct provision camps, which, which are just kind of like holding cells for, for people who are, uh, you know, waiting to get into the country, uh, and it seems like people who are coming from Ukraine are not going to face that same kind of uh, hurdles to get in. Um, I, I don't know what the situation is like in the U.S. as far as that goes, but it's certainly like that in Europe. Um, it, what do you think about this institutional difference in, in how you know these states and and uh, these you know these countries are are treating? Uh, these refugees and and what do you think that that kind of says kind of more broadly about these these humanitarian crises that are ongoing oh, fuck forgot to hit the unhit hit the unmute button but um yeah i mean this is something that hits close to home uh even in my household like my wife uh works in a global humanitarian organization and has uh, visited refugee camps in Jordan um, of Syrian refugees and Palestinian refugees. So she's seen firsthand the dire straits that these folks live in. Like, I mean, just living in, you know, these little tents and scorpions, like crawling on their pillows at night, even if they have pillows at all. Like, it's it's something that really hits close to our household, like, in terms of the work that she's done um, here and and even domestically as well and in dealing with refugees locally. Now she works for International Rescue Committee, which, you know, is also helping with a lot of these resettlement efforts as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there's, there's definitely a double standard that we see because, uh, you know, I remember during this, I mean, we're just <laughs> a year plus removed from the Muslim ban here in the U.S. And then, you know, the adjacent refugee bans uh, that existed and sort of the gutting of the refugee system here in the United States by the Trump administration. Um, so I think on one level, like here, the the refugee system is, is being rebuilt and they find themselves scrambling to even be able to help anybody. But there is, I think, sort of a, a double standard that exists in terms of how you know, a lot of these European countries that were espousing this open anti-refugee, open anti-refugee sentiment are, are being so welcoming. And they should be, like I said, at the at the outset of this program, like this is what we're showing what our best selves can be by by being so welcoming and, and being empathetic and, and, you know, greeting folks with flowers and, and hugs and, and all of that. But once again, like we were we were facing the largest refugee crisis since World War II uh, prior to the Ukraine situation happening as well. And there was a way different set of rhetoric that was being deployed by, you know, the United States, um, you know, on a state and, and federal level and by European countries as well. And so folks that 
that have family members, loved ones, countrymen and women who have been impacted by these uh, upheavals, they see these differences. I mean, you know, Yemenis are, are, are just as human as, as anybody else, but they're, they're getting a, a fraction of the coverage as everybody else. Um, I mean, even, you know, as, as an organization, even CARE Washington, I mean, we're, we're helping with a lot of the Afghan resettlements and we've done some, some different evacuations, but I, I do see a, even a difference because of the adjacency of, you know, a lot of Afghans with, with being, you know, positively affiliated with like the United States after a uh, 20 plus year long war, sort of being given a little bit more priority than, than everybody else. And that's just sort of a, I, I mean, it's a, it's a struggle uh, for people that do the work because you know of so many different uh, deserving people, um, Syrians, Yemenis, you know, people from Central Africa and so many different, uh, you know, Central American countries as well who deserve to be treated with the same humanity as well. Um, you know, our elected officials across Europe are, are you know, rolling out the red carpet um, and that's, it just shows that we, we do have enough room for refugees in all of these countries, but show that same standard, like, uh, that, I mean, that instance that Nashua mentioned is, is, is true. Like there was this narrative in, in places like, you know, Germany and Europe that, you know, Syrian refugees are going to come and they're going to rape your, your women and, and, you know, instill Sharia law. This is like a demographic threat, but when, the folks who are being resettled are blonde hair and blue eyed. There's not that fear of demographic threat. At the end of the day, refugees want to go back to their home country like that. They're not coming to take advantage of the system. They want, you know, if, if you're Syrian and you've built generations upon generations of your life over there, you want to get back to your home. Um, so it's just this, it's all about narrative and, and public opinion. And it's easier to deploy Islamophobic or, or racist bigotry when, somebody looks different than you. Right. And, and there's, you know, there's also the fact that, you know, these are probably the, you know, it's like we're 22 years into the century. I mean, this, this is the beginning of, of what's going to probably be a massive upheaval in, in, in the way that people move around this country or, or, or sorry, around the world uh, as, as we're going to see, you know, more conflict and, and resource uh, wars and, and, and climate crises. I mean, there's just going to be a lot of movement and these policies that are being put in place, these restrictive policies in Ukraine. I mean, Ukraine being the exception shows us what the rule is, right? The rule is that you keep people out. And so this is just going to uh, continue. I think, I think that when you look at U.S. policy uh, in Central and South America and the Muslim ban, uh, you are seeing the architecture being put in place for that, whether or not it's, you know, intentional or knowing or not, uh, that is what's going on. Uh, you know, uh, with, with, uh, in our last half hour here, I kind of wanted to shift, uh, to more, uh, domestic U S thing. And also to say, if anybody wants to call in and talk, please feel free. Um, but you've been tracking the ongoing, uh, hate crimes, Islamophobic hate crimes that have been going on in the U.S. And I don't understand why this isn't a bigger story uh, because it seems pretty consistent. I think um, uh, one of the more recent ones, I believe, and you can correct me if I'm wrong about the city, but I think it was Olympia uh, at a mosque or, or maybe it was Tacoma. Uh, somebody threw like uh, an incendiary dev device or something like that. Can you can you talk about like what you're seeing and and why this is so troubling? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, I'm, I relocated to Washington State at the end of 2020 and like being in the midst of a pandemic, like as somebody who is, is in a community-based organization, my goal is to get out there and, and try and meet folks, um, you know, at different mosques and different institutions to try and, you know, get to know them better. I didn't know that the way that I was going to get to know a lot of them was through their facilities getting attacked. Um, and it, that's sort of a sad, grim reality that we have to deal with. So, yeah, there's been at least five incidents at mosques in Washington State alone in the past four or five months alone. Um, and then you add a sick temple um, in federal way as well. So it's, it's, a, it's a chain of, of different things. And it's not connected like you know, it's not like one group is, is responsible for 
every single attack, but it's just a troubling, I think, trend that's taking place and something that, that should be concerning to, to everybody else. I mean, the most serious of which was in Tacoma um, a few months back where you have a mosque being hit by a Molotov cocktail. Um, there was extensive damage, about you know a few hundred thousand dollars worth of damage done to the facility. There were actually people who were in the facility at the time um, praying and this Molotov cocktail hit and it, you know, caused the roof to be damaged, you know, fire and water damage as well. So, and this was somebody who actually was caught and they, it was somebody who was espousing anti-Muslim rhetoric prior to getting there. So we know that this for a fact was an Islamophobic attack. And then there was an incendiary type device that was placed out outside of a mosque in Olympia as well. Um, just a few weeks later, um, it wasn't a firework. It was something that was it was a little bit louder. It was heard for a few miles radius. And these are that community are, you know, speaking of refugees, these are, you know, majority uh, from Cambodia, Cham refugees, you know, people who have lived like very traumatic lives and escaped sort of a war torn situation. So when you hear like sort of this explosion, you have, you know, small children and elderly folks in the in the community as well. It's obviously very jarring for them. They haven't really caught anybody in relation to that specific instance. And then a third notable uh, incident is, you know, two two individuals went into a mosque in a city called Mount Lake Terrace, and they took Qurans and like artifacts off of the shelves. They stuffed them in a trash uh, trash bag, and then they were seen on surveillance video throwing them in a dumpster. Obviously, this is you know. Uh, motivated by anti-Muslim sentiment. Um, there was another incident that took place maybe about two weeks ago in a city called Burien, uh, where a car rammed into the women's prayer space in this uh, newer Islamic center and, you know, shattered glass. If somebody was actually praying there at the time, there would have been, you know, extensive critical injuries that could have taken place. Um, thankfully, nobody was in that room at the time, but it was a hit and run type situation. It's yet to be seen whether or not this was motivated by anti-Muslim sentiment. But all this is to say is, you know, Muslims may make up between one and two percent of the total population over here. Are we just really unlucky where our our facilities are just being, you know, hit just randomly all the time? Or is there a larger issue that that we need to speak about? Um, that's a question that we have. We look back to the Christchurch New Zealand shooting. That is a manifestation of our biggest fears in terms of of what could happen to a community. Um, you know, somebody who espoused that anti-refugee, neo-Nazi, white supremacist type rhetoric, and you know, was using 4chan, 8chan, and all of these you know these different community boards to to sort of radicalize themselves in this way and then you know live stream this mass murder on on the internet um so that is the worst manifestation with 55 people killed you have um you know the quebec city massacre as well with with six people killed so these and this this is tied in with the rise in anti-semitism as well like you have the pittsburgh and poway shootings that took place, um, you know, in, in the past few years as well. So like, you know, anti-Muslim bigotry and, and racism and anti-Semitism, like they're still there. I think things are skewed in terms of mass shooting numbers in this country because of the pandemic. Like we've seen maybe those numbers go down in the past few years. But as we sort of start returning back to semi-normal activities, that's something to, I think, keep an eye on because, I, I myself have seen that intersection of gun culture and Islamophobia living in Arizona for 15 years. You know, you have people rolling up to our events in like 2017. Uh, you have a group called like the Arizona Patriot Movement showing up to our banquet and they're carrying guns and rifles and, and you know, standing outside and harassing our community members. Uh, they actually tried to come and get into my office as well. Um, later on, you know, beginning of 2018, they were live streaming on Facebook Live um, and trying to, you know, come into my office and get into some type of confrontation with with members of, of CARE Arizona. And, you know, they were armed when they, when they were trying to get in. Luckily, we weren't there at the time. But you see sort of this intersection of, of this massive level of bigotry that's been espoused and, 
open carry laws that exist in the state. So for me, it's it's a concern. Yeah, yeah, because it, it you know there's there's a there's only a few steps away from from this kind of causing terror uh, and and uh, you know these these intimidating attacks to the point where where people get killed and get hurt, as you're saying. Um, which and and you know I kind of want to. Uh, dig into that a little bit I'm I'm curious like you know you were saying that you know 2017 and and 2018 uh you know like you kind of or singling out those time periods can you can you talk a little bit about you know the changes that you saw and how people in the U.S. uh were treating your community uh before Trump and and maybe during the campaign and after because obviously um, uh, it, it feels like maybe things got worse, uh, and, and people got more emboldened. Would that be accurate, or 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 is is that just? Is that, is yeah, that I, I, I think so. I mean, like it, it's sort of followed this, you know, step progress of of there. There was a lot of rhetoric, obviously. Like in if you look in the direct aftermath of nine eleven, there was. Obviously, the rhetoric levels were at a at a high level, like with Fox News and and so many different outlets, Rush Limbaugh, and then so many influential folks in the media utilizing their their pulpits for you know spreading hate. But a lot of it was rhetorical. A lot of it was you know ugly signs and and you know just rhetoric being spewed. But and and there don't get me wrong, there there was hate crimes taking place and violence during these times. But you saw like around 2008 to 2010 time frame where there was this this spike you know and this this uh intersects with i would say the tea party movement um during the obama administration so a lot of these tea party groups really latched on to islamophobia so way more of a of a base for embracing this anti-muslim bigotry during that uh that time frame um and so you know it just started creeping upward over the course of the next four or five years. Um, in 2015 in Phoenix, Arizona, there was an armed mosque protest that took place, um, you know, and that was really, that was like a very eye-opening moment for me. It was, I think, May 29th, uh, 2015. Um, and the they're led by, you know, a lot of the militia groups and things like that. So a lot of these border militia groups and sort of violent sort of, three percenter type organizations started rallying around anti-Muslim bigotry as well. They coalesced at this mosque in Phoenix with like a couple hundred protesters with, with automatic weapons and masks and, you know, before masks were, were uh, cool over here. Um, And so, yeah, that was a a troubling period. Then you started seeing a a rise in armed mosque protests taking place in places like Texas and, and other States. So it wasn't like, widespread but it, it in in open carry states and where there where there's you know these types of uh militia type movements it definitely raised my eyes in terms of like what potentially could be coming down the road and you know it's not just you know the violence has has not just touched our community obviously you saw with with charleston uh and dylan roof you know going into a black church and, and killing nine people like i mentioned with the synagogue shootings like the El, and, and the el paso shooting as well like things just really started accelerating um during that trump era i think a lot of folks felt as though they had a mandate um and like yeah you know we're gonna go after you know the reported en- enemies of America during this time. And we sort of have this level of impunity where um, we can just go out there, say what we want. There's a sense of anim- anonymity that exists on the internet as well. Um, you know, there's, I, I've seen, you know, a lot of the folks that, that, uh, you know, pose with like, you know, guns, like, you know, assault rifles and things like that, like lionizing, uh, the 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 Christchurch shooter and and calling him a saint, calling uh, Anders Breivik a saint, and a lot of these other uh, mass shooters who espouse the similar like anti-Muslim, anti-refugee sentiment. So like, there's this, you know, it ex- still exists. You know, there's the subculture of folks that really like, you know, think that there's this race war that's that's impending. So you know, I don't think 
just because Trump was was defeated in, in the last election that that level of, of hate has just died down and these people have gone back to, you know, their day jobs. They're still, you know, neo-Nazis and, 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 and organizations and, and individuals who are espousing this type of rhetoric. So I think we just have to be vigilant as, as communities that, that potentially could be targeted by this type of hate. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it, it definitely does speak to like this kind of ongoing nationalism and hate, uh, that is, as you're saying, like directed at a lot of different communities, uh, you know, whether that's, uh, you know, Muslim community, Jewish community, black community, uh, uh, Latin community, you know, it's, it, it's all seems to be coming from, from one place. Um, and and when it becomes part of policy, as, you know, as we saw with the last administration, certainly, and and as we're still seeing with this administration, and and the and the two before it, anyway, we could just we could go on and on down the line. But um, you know, these the, this rhetoric has real effects in how uh, it it manifests itself in actual uh, policy. Um, what what is your sense of of what you've seen so far from this administration, where uh, where where at least you know in the run up to the election they were saying that things would be different, um, and uh, you know I, they they did change some things, but uh, what do you think? I mean, what do you think so far? Yeah, I mean it, it, it's it's an interesting pivot. Um, I think during. I mean, as somebody who's who's seen <laughs> the, the live through all all of these different administrations in the pre pre and post nine eleven era, like they just all have have different flavors. I mean, we spoke of of George W. Bush as as you know the twenty first century's like greatest war criminal, and you know now he's he's out there like you know painting dog pictures and, and being you know dancing with Ellen and and sort of whitewashed his his sort of history there and um i mean it's it's you know that it just spans like these these different feelings like yeah trump was viscerally you know in your face about about embracing anti-muslim bigotry and like you know the muslim ban like i said is 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 a household that that is tied in with the refugee system and and you know helping resettle refugees and things like that like the damage that Trump did to the immigration system and the refugee resettlement system here cannot be um, understated. And so like things like the Muslim ban and and things like that, even rhetorically, I think was damaging. Like, I mean, it it basically codified anti-Muslim bigotry in, in, um, you know, in our law and it it was allowed and it was, it, it was basically not really fought tooth and nail during that time frame. So, yeah, I mean, Biden, you know, as we tra- transition in, into him, like there's been some positives in terms of like repairing some of that damage. Um, but I mean, it's not to say that, you know, this type of uh, with with liberals, there's there's sort of this under the surface bigotry that there always exists as well. And it manifests itself in different ways. Like the, the I think there's you know, some somewhat embracing of, of diversity that exists. And so I have to give them credit for from that standpoint. But, you know, in the way that they may sort of give Israel just complete impunity when it comes to bombing Palestine or theft of land and, and things like that, like that, I mean, and let's make no mistake about it, like that is Islamophobia that is that is allowing, um, you know, a, a nation state like Israel to con- continue um, to act with impunity when it comes to, you know, the theft and the displacement and the apartheid that exists over there. And, they, you know, this administration is not willing to speak up just as any other administration. So that's something that still exists with, with liberals and, and we don't expect to change anytime soon. Um, yeah, I mean, and it's, it's hard to say, like, like I said, who knows what's going to happen in 2024 in terms of who's going to be put out there. Maybe Trump doesn't get elected again. Maybe it's somebody like, you know, Ron DeSantis who's embraced Trumpism and he's much younger and a little bit more politically savvy and may move to 
you know, reinstitute some of these, you know, popu- populist type uh, things that, that took place. So I think, you know, as a community that's that's marginalized that or has been marginalized for for many years, like we're under no illusions that, oh, everything is going to be safe, you know, under just a democratic administration. Like you can see how things just completely shift, um, you know, from election to election. So you have to be vigilant. You have to continue to build community power. Um, I mean, from a positive perspective, you see a lot more Muslims from our community, you know, empowered during that that Trump administration and running for local and state office. So, you know, obviously the most famous of which are Ilhan and Rashida and, and many others who ran for Congress. But here in even Washington state, we have seven or eight Muslims who've been elected to their city councils and to, you know, poor commissions and different groups. So my hope is that we'll continue to see like diverse voices, um, you know, coming up within the political system. And that may, you know, sort of, I think move move things along in terms of the meter, but yeah, I mean, hate is always going to exist, and, and sort of this white supremacist rhetoric. So we just got to, you know, continue to build these bonds of of uh, allyship between you know different groups and, and intersectionality. I think that's the main thing. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's uh, interesting that you bring up uh, uh, Talib and Omar uh, specifically because I, I was going to mention. Uh, earlier and I forgot uh, Tapper's kind of obsession with them is a little, right. it's, it's a little revealing. Let's put it that way. Um, yeah. So we just have a couple more minutes here, but um, I, you know, I did kind of want to get uh, your take and maybe, you know, uh, the humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan that is uh, largely a creation of U S policy, intentional U S policy. Um is obviously horrific. You were talking about, you know, the that um, the, the people in the in the expatriate Afghan community. Um, have you heard anything from the country? Uh, you know, through them, or you know, I'm sure that a lot of people are really concerned about uh, their their family and friends over there. Um, is you know, is is it as bad as it seems, or uh, or are things getting a little bit better now that they released some of the money? Do you do you know anything about that? Uh, just from what I've been seeing, you know, in the in the discourse on on Twitter, you know, Afghans that that I trust and things like that, um, you know, I heard there's there's a just continuance of of infants who are who are being affected by these these sanctions and and lack of funding that exists over there. So, and I think that goes back to our original point about how like you know, brown and, and black and Muslim lives, they're almost acceptable to to lose on a wholesale basis. Um, think back to the sanctions that Clinton put on Iraq back in, in the 90s, for example. I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands, if not a million people who lo- lost their lives because of, of these these sanctions, you know, different countries that are, that are being hit by these things. And these are just like, we've been conditioned and I talk about we as like the West, you know, consumers of, of Western media that this is acceptable. Like we're cannon fodder. We're basically, you know, if there's a bombing that takes place and 20 people were in the radius and they died and they had nothing to do with the, the actual target and they were just civilians, then that was acceptable. If, if 5,000 people died in, in the course of a calendar year of a bombing campaign, that's just normal. And I mean, it's just a sad testament as to where we are today in terms of, of, of valuing human life. And so my hope, my hope is that in this moment <laughs> when we're talking about refugees um, in, in such a, a glowing and positive way that, that we'll have some pause and, and we'll, you know, collectively take care of all of these, these issues, like, you know, what's happening in Yemen and Afghanistan and so on and so forth. But um, the, the pessimist in me, unfortunately, knows that the we're just gonna you know turn the page and be back to the media cycle once once this uh you know sort of passes but yeah i mean it's it's tough i mean we have about three thousand people from afghanistan that have been resettled over here um in in the state of washington and and you know they've obviously been traumatized and and horrified by you know what they've seen over there and you know it's 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 a tough situation so we just got to continue to advocate um, 
you know, on, on behalf of the people who, who didn't make it out of there as well. I mean, folks that are that are starving or struggling economically and, and so on and so forth. And we can't let these types of, of, of issues pass and like allow ourselves to be, um, you know, victims of the new cycle, just, you know, Oh, you know, like we're going to talk about, you know, you know, what, what if Trump gets on the call in app or, or whatever, and he says something unhinged, you know, like he doesn't have Twitter anymore, but that sort of was like for for many years, we, we, you know, CNN and MSNBC just was fixated on what Trump tweeted on a certain day and like how many lives were lost during that time frame. So during such a atrocious, you know, bombing campaign that's taking place um, in, in Ukraine, like our, my hope is that we, we can at least like see humanity for what it is and stand up against injustice wherever it is. Absolutely. I think, I think that hopeful note is, is a good place to end it actually. Um, you know, uh, just one last thing though, where should people go to not only support the work that you do, but also to support the kind of work that you do? Like not, not only specifically Washington state, but also nationally. I mean, what, what are, uh, what are some good things for people to do to, to help out here? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's ton of, of great organizations to, to support. I mean, my organization is care Washington, so you can go to carewa.org, C-A-I-R-W-A.org. Um, you know, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, um, the national organization is care, C-A-I-R.com. Um, they're based out of Washington, DC, um, doing amazing work in terms of standing up for Muslims and, and civil rights here in the United States. And, you know, in terms of refugees and, and things like that, I know we talked a lot about uh, refugees, you know, International Rescue Committee is a great organization that's doing uh, work on uh, for folks that are being uh, resettled here in the United States. I know they, they need help during this time, especially after, you know, recovering from the, the Trump administration. So definitely help them out as well. And, um, you know, maybe we can, I'll send Owen some, some links as to uh, some other organizations that you all can, can support as well. Excellent. Yeah. We'll put them in the, in, in the show description. Uh, all right, Imran, uh, thank you so much for joining me. Really great to, uh, to connect with you here. Um, thanks everybody for joining us for this conversation. And, uh, we'll talk to you guys on Thursday when we have Carol Schaefer back. Uh, she'll be reporting in live from Lviv. Uh, Imran, thanks again, and thanks, everybody, yeah, for, thank for listening. Bye. Bye.